This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com What the hell is a wildlife corridor? <laughs> well, that's, that's what we had our, our guest on for. Uh, we had Casey Stemmler who's the guy who runs uh, the program or the secretarial order 3362 became famous last administration. It's all about conservation of big game wildlife migration corridors uh, in the West. And it's interesting because Casey has a 30 year background in all kinds of wildlife stuff. And one of the coolest things I heard was how he used the, the Migratory Waterfowl Joint Venture Program as kind of a model. I'm sure that appealed to you a bit, too. Oh, yeah, man. I, you know, anytime to talk ducks, but obviously waterfowl migrations have been studied forever. And, and while people have known big game out west migrate, I don't think it had been, most, most of us have been that conscious of it. So it, it's really interesting to hear the parallels there. Yeah, and so so for those of us who live in the West and kind of understand this stuff because it's happening around us all the time, this will be a good primer and an update on, you know, just where that thing lies. I think a lot of folks thought it kind of went dormant. It's still active. Casey's still chugging away. And for those, uh, you know, in other parts of the country, you'll get a good, you'll get a good indicator of what the hell is a wildlife corridor, as Bill just asked, and uh, and where this thing lies and what it's doing. I think folks will really enjoy this episode. You get to learn a lot about migration, connectivity, how, how all the different agencies work together and what we're doing across this country to conserve these, these areas that are just seeing all kinds of new light and focus. So enjoy this episode, folks. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. 
Howdy, folks, and welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kendall, with my awesome co-host, Bill Cooksey. What's happening, brother? Hey, man, just uh, enjoying the start of spring, even though I think we're going to be 19 here tomorrow night. But uh, need to mow the yard, and we're going to be under 20 degrees. It's crazy. <laughs> the the fun of the roller coaster of spring weather. We're, we're doing the same here in Colorado. And uh, we're lucky today we have a Coloradoan on with us. And uh, he's someone that folks are really going to like hearing from. Today we have Casey Stemmler. How you doing, sir? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> You're welcome. And uh, this this conversation has been a long time in the making. Casey's been uh, working on what most of us know, the Secretarial Order 3362 about big game migration corridors in the West. And it's just a fascinating subject. And it's also uh, really garnered a lot more of the spotlight in the last, I don't know, four or five years. Uh, previous presidential administration issued that Secretarial Order still out there today it's moving it's it's shaking and, and we're going to talk about that today but first i'm going to introduce casey a little more formally so folks know his background what he's up to what his uh history is and he's got over 30 years of experience in the federal government and he currently leads a, a multi-bureau 11 western state habitat conservation effort uh that is 3362 and that's really focusing on improving Habitat Quality and Big Game Winter Range and Migration Corridors. And his title is, it's a mouthful, but it's a good one. He's the Senior Advisor for Western Issues for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Coordinator for Secretarial Order 3362. And he's got all kinds of really cool experience over that 30 years in the field, you know, regional, national levels. He had a stint on Capitol Hill. Uh, and he's been with the U.S. Geological Survey at one point. And so he served as the, as the regional chief for migratory birds, the regional chief for bird habitat conservation, and the coordinator for the Prairie Pothole Joint Venture. So, wow, just all around expert on wildlife, wildlife policy, and habitat. And long time coming, but welcome, Casey. Thank you very much. Yeah, I listen to that. And I guess if you stick around long enough, you got a lot of different gigs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. And, and you, you've got them. And that's what that's what's going to make this conversation so fun. But uh, Casey, first, we told you we start with what you've been doing outside. So hopefully you've got some cool outdoor adventure you can avail us with here to, to start out. Sure. I'll, I'll just talk about what I did last weekend. So I'm actually in a hunting lease in Dorchester. Dorchester County, Maryland. And so last Friday, I hopped on an airplane and, and flew out there and, and connected with two dear friends that are both club members. And we spent the weekend on our club moving tree stands, trimming trees, trimming brush. A lot of trees fell down in our woods over the winter. So we spent time clearing those and uh, trying to figure out where the deer, it seems like in our woods, they move a little bit differently each season. At least some of them do. Now, we're at in Dorchester County. We have white-tailed deer, obviously, but we also have the Sika deer. And we did see three hinds, which are the female Sika deer, and one small stag. So that's always gets you excited for the, for the upcoming hunting season. And so that's, you know, when I have extra time on the weekends, I'm, I'm outdoors doing something, be it scouting, shooting, or in this case, back east, working on our lease out there. So, yeah. That's what I spend my time doing. Nice. You've got a diverse hunting background and, and experience as well as a professional. Yeah, I, I spent 10 years in D.C. And uh, coming from the West, 
paying to hunt was nothing I was familiar with, to be honest. I mean, back then we didn't have land in our tags and all that stuff. When, when, I, you know, when I grew up, I had friends that had land and that's where we used to go hunting. When I moved back east, I took that same mentality and I learned very quickly, if you want to hunt and not fight with 10,000 people on public land, you, you want to get into one of these leases. And so I yeah. swallowed the boat and spent the money and it's been wonderful. Good. But those Sika deer too are so cool and most people don't even, you know, don't know about them really as a huntable population anywhere in the country, yet there they are. Yeah, you know, Bill, uh, there's not enough of them. We don't want anybody else hunting them. So, you know, stay home. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of the ones that are left out there. And so, yeah, no, they are one of the best, well, it is the best eating game that I've had. Everyone tells me axis deer is better. I've not had those yet, but the Sika deer are incredibly good. They're, they're not very big though. I mean, a hind is 40 pounds maybe. And, and, the, and a stag is, you know, 70 to a hundred maybe. And they're, they're very difficult to hunt. You see them. And then two seconds later, they're gone because they're so small, but very unique species. I think there are three or four counties in Maryland that have them and one county in Virginia. And that's it. <clears> hmm. <throat> Well, thanks, Casey. What about you, Big Bill? I know you've been out. Not as much as you'd hope, but uh, the Tennessee River's still at flood. I uh, can't even get to our boathouse, but I have been scouting turkeys. Uh, matter of fact, yesterday afternoon, I got to go spend uh, on an island in the Mississippi River with a friend who just got access to it, uh, about 1,500 acres of good turkey and deer ground. So I am uh, uh, have a lot of high hopes for that place and looking forward to getting out there during the season. Excellent. You're right. And I, I don't think you can ever fulfill as much as I would hope you would be outside because I hope you're just outside all the time. And I don't think you can make that happen. <laughs> Me too, brother. Me too. <laughs> well, that's a hope that I share for myself too. I, uh, I was lucky enough. I, I've been hanging out with the same group of fellas since, since college and 1999, we started a tradition to go backpacking in the winter. And just this last week, I, I spent five nights in the Utah canyons, um, backpacking with this same group of buddies and it was phenomenal. We were in Bears Ears National Monument and uh, we saw tons of ruins and petroglyphs and, you know, artifacts, just amazing, amazing stuff and spent some days immersed in the canyon. So that's my outdoor adventure as of late. And it was, it was awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's jump over to, to talking more to Casey about all this cool stuff he has going on. And today, the main topic is going to be migration and connectivity, wildlife migration and connectivity. And we're even going to extend that to, to waterfowl a little because of Casey's expertise and because of, of Bill's background, too. And we always got to bring that in. But, you know, Casey, I think the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, you've been up to this uh, for a while and you've been doing this through two different presidential administrations. I think a lot of our folks have heard Secretarial Order 3362, the Big Game Migration Corridor Order, and they've been working on it. We've seen develops, developments in a lot of our Western states. But what about just what's the latest? I think it, you know. I think a lot of folks think, well, maybe it went dormant a while. It hasn't. But uh, let's just talk about what what changed. What's the latest? So the latest is it is remains a priority. Um, it was a priority of the last administration, obviously. They signed it. And this administration has taken it on to be their own priority as well. And in fact, this administration has a, uh, an effort called America the Beautiful. And they issued a report 
uh, earlier or last year, I guess it was. And in that report, it specifically yeah. mentions SO3362. And then they did an annual report and it also included mention of 3362. And so I just was literally on a phone call before this with the deputy secretary's office. And we were talking about uh, future steps in the implementation of SO3362. So, you know, Aaron, when I developed this, I know how things work in federal government. And what happens is, is you get a good idea, if you will, and it gets started and implemented. And then that particular administration either gets four more years and it continues for four more, or it gets voted out and a new administration comes in. And nine out of 10 times, whatever was done in the last administration, the new one, particularly if it's a different party, out it goes. They, they kick it to the roadside. And so I've learned that over the 30 plus years I've been doing this stuff. And, and I have to say that it was because of National Wildlife Federation was a signatory on some of these letters, but all the sporting community really rallied around this. They sent letters in to the Department of Interior, to uh, various people within the department. They also did a report that highlighted SO3362. All 11 state fish and wildlife agencies that are involved in this through WAFWA, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, also did a letter in support. So it really was, quite frankly, that groundswell of support from the NGO community, from our state fish and wildlife agency partners that has allowed this to continue through two administrations. I don't necessarily have a question right here, but it, it I mean, you talk about uh, we have kind of contrary two contrary administrations. <laughs> I think all of us could agree there, and yet they're both supportive of this. And that's that says just volumes about that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things, Casey, with that that I'm happy about is just, you know, it, you, you don't let a good idea die just because you're politically opposite, right? And I think you, you talked to it there a bit, the – the kind of bipartisan, organizational, you know, political, all kinds of different support that we've seen for this because it, it basically kind of codifies something that a lot of the sporting community has known for a long time, right? You know, you see these critters down on winter range and, you know, you're like, hmm, th these elk, where'd they come from? And you kind of think and you kind of track it back as a hunter and you're like, well, they summer up in those mountains that are 50 miles away or whatever. And so you kind of knew – inherently that we got to take care of the places in between or else, you know, something could happen. But I think that's pretty cool. And, and I think it's a good time too, Casey, to just maybe start from ground zero again and say, Hey, you know, what exactly is migration and connectivity work? Why does it matter? You know, and then maybe some good stories. Cause I know from my conversations with different agencies, some of the amazing stuff they've learned by doing some collaring and some of these projects. And I'm sure you could go on forever on, on those three questions, but maybe just do what you can there with that, with that opening. Yeah. I appreciate that question, Aaron, uh, because something that's part of this kind of gets dropped off along the way. And, and I understand that. So I'll go to square one. I was in a Right place, right time. I know it sounds cliche, but it's just a matter of fact. And <clears throat> I happened to be on detail in the deputy secretary's office of the interior. And while I sat there, my mind's racing going, you know, I've been in situations where you have new people in this building. They don't really know what they want to do. They talk about it, but they don't know how to do it. So 
I came up with this idea. And quite frankly, my idea was more focused on winter range. And it's because growing up in the West and watching what's happening to our Western landscape, it, it, it continues. It got worse during the pandemic to watch these ranches that I've, I know the people who own them, but they might pass on and there's three or four kids. They don't want to run the ranch and then they sell it off. And all of a sudden now it's five acre ranchettes. Well, that particular ranch might have been the winter range for a herd of elk or for a herd of deer or what have you. And so that is where the original idea came from in my mind was the winter range. But you just alluded to it, recognizing well, they don't fly down here, at least not big game. So how are they getting here? There's, there's a corridor that they're using, this migration corridor. And so I literally put together a two-page document, gave it to the deputy secretary with this idea, took it to the secretary and came back and says, we're doing it. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. And then fast forward a little bit, I came back to Colorado and they reached out to me and says, hey, we need you to write a secretarial order. I didn't even know what a secretarial order was. I had to figure that out and <laughs> I wrote the secretary over 3362 and is there some things I'd like to change? Of course, there always is once you start implementing it, but it, it, the crux of it still, um, I think, works very well. And the way I approached it was to take a different step, really, from the federal government perspective. I, I don't approach things as we're here to tell you what you need or we're here to tell you how to do things. Mine's a collaborative partnership approach. And that's how it was implemented with the states. We approach the states with respect. They're the ones that manage these big game species. The federal government, we come to the table with funding, hopefully, funding, technical capabilities, things of that nature. Whereas the states, they have the management authority. And that's how I approach the implementation. And so to your point about the importance of migration corridors. I don't want to lose the fact that they're coming from what we call seasonal habitat or going to seasonal habitat. Winter range is critically important because we're losing that very, very quickly. The corridor gets you down to that winter range, but of course, the seasonal, or the, excuse me, the, the summer range is where they go up, have their babies or calves, fawns, whatever. And that was not included in the order. And really it had to do with, with USDA. And it's a different department that has the primary responsibility for that. And so I'm going to take one second here to, to tell you a story that I, you know, you put your foot in your mouth, but it sounded like a good analogy. So I had the opportunity to visit with the secretary of agriculture on this topic. And there was, uh, gosh, Colin O'Mara was in the room. As a matter of fact, there was uh, a lot of CEOs from different organizations in this room, and Secretary asked me about the corridor effort. And so I come up with this great idea, and I've used it before, and it works well, but it doesn't work well with the Secretary of Ag. I said, so think of this as a human body. <clears throat> okay, so you have your legs, you have your torso, and you have your head. And think of it then as, okay, your legs are the winter range, your torso is the migration corridor, and the head is the summer range. All those pieces need to be working together to be have a functional body. And I said, sir, the problem is we're missing the head, meaning we're missing the summer range. And he laughter erupted in the room, and he looked at me and goes, wow, so you're saying USDA is headless? 
I said, no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we need to have the summer range in here to make it a complete body. So that became the joke. The rest of this meeting, he'd look at me and say, yeah, we're headless. And so you think about the analogy in that way. I do think it's not to the Secretary of Egg, but I do think it's a good way to explain what the migration corridor, it attaches those two, the summer and the winter range. Yeah, I think one of the other things too, Casey, is you know, for folks who aren't from the West, kind of just painting a little picture, what we're talking about here is often, you know, a big elevation difference. We're talking summer range that's, you know, depending on what Western state, somewhere between 6, 10, 12, even up to 12, 13,000 feet here in Colorado, alpine habitat, montane habitat, you know, that that grass, and we've heard the, the analogy surfing the green wave, right? That grass is much more nutritious, much more supple, you know, in, in July than it is down at, you know, 5,000 feet where it's already browning up and, you know, not, doesn't have as much nutritional, you know, value. And so if you can imagine these critters that are needing to be from, leave that high country, obviously that's going to get way too much snow to, to persist in the winter as a, as an elk or a deer and go down and hang out in that, in that winter range where the snow's deep enough, you know, that they can still dig and find forage and so on. And, and they just kind of got to get through. And if you can imagine too, if there's a road or if there's a housing development or if there's a energy development or wind development or anything in between, it's going to make that journey harder. And I think all big game hunters know also how critical it is to, to put on that winter, fa- uh, that summer fat. And, and then that's what helps them persist through the winter. And every obstacle means more calories burnt, means less chance of survival, all those different things. So the acknowledgement of that and, and what you're trying to do here is really critical in helping all the managers kind of understand that life cycle and, and get everybody engaged kind of on that common purpose. That's what I really love about this. Uh, I wanted to ask you too, you know, let's talk about kind of the focus and, and we, we've now focused on it. There's been four, five, six, maybe more years in different places where state agencies are are collaring animals. They're looking at, you know, miniature migration routes. I know in Colorado here, we found there's some that are like five miles. You know, they're just basically from high elevation to low elevation, just real quick. And they don't, they don't leave that area. And then we've got some that are hundred miles or more. You know, let's talk about that. What is, what is this new focus revealing to us about what these critters do and what they need? Yeah. So uh, that is all based on Technology and technology really is, a, you know, a blessing and a curse. We we all know that, but in the wildlife research, it's truly a blessing. And when I first started in wildlife research, I started in Alaska, and we would mark. We had wolves, moose, lynx marked with these collars that we had to track with an airplane. Once we got the locational data, we would write it on a topo map, kind of accurate. I moved on, started doing waterfowl research, and you put these backtrack transmitters on them, and you. you follow those birds around with this truck that had this huge antenna that would stick out of the roof called a Yeti. And you, you cannot believe the looks you would get and the questions you get asked, but whatever. I, it, some, I didn't get pulled over by the police. Um, <clears throat> that's how we tracked them. And then we would triangulate them to find out where they were at. Yeah, it's a little, little better accuracy. But now with GPS technology, we mark these animals and we're able to track them within meters. And, and that has allowed us to really understand how these animals move about the landscape. And so I'll take one example. 
in Nevada, we supported a research project through 362 on pronghorn. Did they know they moved interstate? Perhaps, but they weren't sure. So they marked these pronghorn in northwestern Nevada and found out, wow, this herd moves to California. Then they move up to Oregon and they make this big loop back around to Nevada. So when you're thinking about state management of a wildlife species, here's an instance, and I can give you same examples with mule deer, with elk, that it crosses these state boundaries. And so these herds are, some of them are multi-state um, management is necessary. And so that that's one example. Another important example that we've found through all of this is the, and we all, we all know this because back east, I don't care where you live, in the west, we see the roadside mortalities, or we've unfortunately hit one, a deer, elk, pronghorn, moose, God help, that's not a moose, all these types of things. Well, this effort has allowed us to really hone in on some of these really critical areas on highways across the nation. Some of them are impediments. The animals will not go past, I-80 being one, they won't go past that particular highway, interstate, what other. Others keep trying to go through and some of them get whacked by cars and some of them make it. Why is that important? Not only is it important from a human health and safety perspective, but also from the genetic exchange. And again, that's why these migration corridors are so important because it allows the exchange of genetic material between these populations of animals. And if you don't have that, a disease outbreak can, can come into a herd. And if they don't have a good genetic buildup in their body, you know, can wipe that population out. So one of the highlights for me through the research component of this happened in Utah, and it was on mule deer research that we funded uh, through this effort with Utah Department of Natural Resources. They marked these mule deer and actually discovered a migration path that they were very unaware of. This migration path went through a town called Eagle Mountain City, Utah. Well, this is like many Western states at that time, Utah was the fastest growing state in the nation. And so these little towns were just exploding. Well, the Utah DNR went to, this, to the local county and said, look, look at the data we have. These animals are passing right through here. Well, the town council took it upon themselves to establish a 1,300-acre wildlife corridor overlay zone it clearly the first time this ever happened in Utah, and I think it might be the first time it's ever happened in a state. And so that's just looking at this going from a large scale right down to a local scale, how this type of, of research and conservation effort can really impact local planning, quite frankly. That's interesting because you talked about the genetics and all. And, and here in my part of the world, I mean, in my work, the only place I really hear a lot of talk day-to-day about corridors is in Florida where you know people moving there basically they're just cutting off Florida Panthers that sort of thing and then I hear on the news about Southern California where mountain lions tend to now they have these isolated populations and that's an issue so this is all 3362 deals with this is that right yeah so so the the larger issue 3362 is is just focused on deer elk and pronghorn okay and and the reason that i picked those three species is because of their importance quite frankly ecologically economically socially to, to the west but one very important other component that i'm really having to say a lot they're non-controversial for the most part 
they'll some would argue with me in Montana that elk aren't their favorite thing on their ranch, but but that's a, that's another story for another day. But you get my point. Connectivity in general, which is really gaining, you know, it's again, it's been around that that Aaron alluded to it. The science has been there at some level. We know these animals do this, but it has just really gotten that traction once 3362 got up and going. Now the spotlight is on. And this administration spotlight is not only on 3362, but also this connectivity. So to your point, mountain lions, grizzly bears, wolverines, all these other things that do in fact move across the landscape uh, become important to look at and say, okay, what do we need to do to facilitate successful movement? We don't talk about railroad tracks. You're talking about railroad tracks in, in Montana, for example, and grizzly bears, that, that is one that also needs to be addressed at some point in time. Maybe it's an overpass to help these bears safely cross. But yep, it, it's a little different, but it's in the same sphere. <clears throat> I, I've got to throw this out real quick. Yeah. When I was in college in Southern California, um, I hunted at a duck club in the Antelope Valley uh, for a couple of years. And the old man that ran it, uh, Burt McKee, he was born, I think, in 1914 or 15. And he had been hunting up there for a long time. And he said that the old timers told him there were tons of antelope in Antelope Valley, which is just north of Los Angeles, until they ran a railroad through the valley and he said the antelope just they wouldn't cross it and eventually left yeah now i don't know how true that is but that was their story oh i think bill i could believe that um i won't say 100 percent, but darn close we already know that antelope do not like pronghorn do not like fences and you know they they don't jump fences you'll get a rare one that will do it but but all in all they, they will not jump fences they crawl underneath them and so if you have real three strand, real, real taunt wire fences, hog fence, those types of things that they're stuck and they, they can't get through. So a railroad track, it's just that impediment to them doing it. But I do know I'm on in, well, Wyoming, Montana, any of these States where it snows a lot and they plow the tracks. Well, guess what? That attracts these animals. Animals always take anyone in the hunting lease or hunting property back East that can, that can cut branches away or a trail into their tree stand, you do that and you look three days later and there's deer tracks right down the trail that you just cut because that's what they do. They look for the least resistance. And so when they plow these railroad tracks off, uh, these animals can move on there and it's not pretty what can happen to them. <clears throat> yeah. I think that's important that you mentioned that too, Casey, because <clears throat> I think a lot of folks just kind of don't understand, you know, you might see a deer by the side of the road that got hit, but you don't think of it as like this omnipresent problem that's both, you know, a problem for human life. It's a problem for wildlife. And, and there's, there's one of the things I think you can take at least partial credit for through this effort is this new magnifying glass on some of those issues. And it's resulted in a lot of cool things. We've seen this year, Utah passed a bill. We've got a bill percolating in Colorado. We've got, you know, it's called the safe passages bill because really that's what it is. It's safe passage for human and wildlife. And I was just reading this bill yesterday and I've got some of these numbers. Each year in Colorado, there's 4,000 vehicle crashes with with wildlife. I mean, that's that's not chump change, right? It results in 80 million annually in property damage, emergency response. I mean, that's that's real numbers to people. 
we have a famous one too, Highway 9. I'm sure you're very familiar with it, Casey. It's between this place called Silverthorne and Kremling, which is it's just right through the heart of really great winter range for, for deer and elk. And there's a 92% increase or decrease, sorry, in vehicle wildlife collisions since they did. It's a handful of overpasses and some fencing. It's not a big stretch. I think it's like a 23 mile stretch or something. And, and, and you're talking 92% increase. I think there used to be a, hand, a couple of fatalities a year on average. Now there's none. I mean, these are real obvious, tangible benefits that I think, you know, benefit everyone besides the wildlife lovers that I think are, are just really cool. And, and just, you know, everywhere you find one of these migration projects, you find those kinds of results. And our agencies are getting really good at collaring and learning where they're going, finding the pinch points, getting them over there safely. And you're seeing really awesome stories that appeal to everyone, like put up cameras, like the day the thing's done, here comes a moose or a bear or something like this. I mean, I'm sure you have a hundred stories of this. What's, what's the best one along those lines? The one I appreciate the most is, is I have to often um, reiterate why I picked deer, elk, and pronghorn. And I do, based on what I just said, ecological, social, economic. But the reality of it is it's habitat, and it's habitat conservation that's the ultimate result of this. And the same can be said for the overpass or underpass. If an overpass is specifically designed and built for elk, movement okay let's say it's an overpass last time i checked there's no sign there that says only elk are allowed and coyotes go over it bobcat go over it all these other species benefit from that activity even though it was done to reduce highway mortality of big game and the same can be said for the habitat work that we're doing through SO3362. Yes, it's focused on those species because as I said earlier, they're non-controversial. I won't go down the list again. But the reality is if you go out and you do the habitat work, there's a myriad of other species that are benefiting from that habitat work. Do we need to talk about grizzly bears? Do we need to talk about wolves? Do we need to talk about mountain lions? When in some places that could be controversial. I submit my focus is habitat conservation. I want to do what I know is needed to get it done. Bringing those species and mentioning those species, does that help us get the habitat conservation done or does it hinder it? That's up for debate. All I'm saying is we all know that those species follow those animals along their migration path because they eat them. And so the work that we're doing <laughs> and the conservation that we do is benefiting a, a lot more than just the focus species. And, and so I just want to make sure that I get that point across. And, and I, I took it for granted and thought that that was just an assumption that everyone understood. But in fact, I think I need to just keep repeating it. So to your question about, you know, good stories about overpasses or underpasses, for me, it's just looking at the, all the wildlife species that actually use those, even though it might have been built for something else. One other so thing it's, it's I no think- different from a uh, uh, wetland that we restore for waterfowl that's our number one thought in restoring it yet all these you know different you know uh, songbirds and upland birds and all sorts of mammals that benefit from it bill i i you know uh, at the beginning aaron talked that i was a coordinator for the prairie pothole joint venture and, and that was based up in north dakota south dakota Western Minnesota, Western Iowa, and in Eastern Montana, the Prairie Pothole region of the U.S. 
completely initially focused on waterfowl because that's where they come from. And to your point exactly, all the wetland work that we do there, all the upland work that we do there, <laughs> you had to make sure that folks understood, look, we're redoing this wetland, but it's about everything that you just said, amphibians, water birds, shorebirds, of course, it's for waterfowl. Well, let's talk about the ecosystem goods and services it provides. It's about flood control. It's about water purification. All those values that we know as practitioners that sometimes we don't always do a great job communicating to the public that here's all the benefits from our conservation efforts. And we've got a lot of work to do in that space, but, but you're absolutely right. <clears throat> Another thing I want to point out, because I, I can't get enough of this, is the resilience piece. Because if you if you think about things like what we've seen out here in Colorado, Casey, you have a big fire, for instance, and, and now animals are trying to flood out of a certain area and they have safe crossings. It's like a door being opened to another place. So it creates resistance to habitat issues, climate issues. You know, it really it really helps them access different parts of habitat that are, you know, sometimes not available if there's a big highway right in the way. Um, and so I think that's just another kind of tangible benefit that, that folks sometimes forget about. But yeah, along those lines there, and I, I would add that <clears throat> there's all kinds of names for it. I call it the infrastructure act or infrastructure law that was recently passed. That law included a first ever provision $350 million over a five-year period pilot project for wildlife crossings. That could be overpasses or underpasses. In all the history of transportation bills, we've never had that dedicated funding for this purpose. Progress has not yet been made on how that is actually going to be implemented or rolled out because not to get too wonky here, but even though that law passed, it required a, an appropriation through the Department of Transportation. And I see that the Senate today signed this omnibus appropriation bill. So I'm sure the president will sign it. That appropriation will happen and they'll get moving on developing this pilot program. But this is for the entire United States and it'll be about 70 million a year that will be dedicated specifically for wildlife overpasses and underpasses. That could be from turtles back in Virginia that I've watched literally migrate from one wetland to another across the highways, or it can be for big game out here in the West and all the species in between. <clears throat> Maybe we'll even throw some money on a bill state on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's nationwide. And one thing that, you know, again, imagine this, it is an incredible process to get one of these projects developed, not only through all the planning parts of it, but all the environmental clearances that you have to do, the NEPA analysis, et cetera, et cetera. And so from the start, it takes about three to five years even to get one of these things ramped up to get funding to them. But fortunately, mm -hmm. a lot of our state agencies have been on the stick. They already have done all this stuff. So when this money comes out, I think you're going to see some of these projects spout up really, really quickly. Howdy listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast. 
Hey everyone, this is Marsha Brownlee from Artemis Sports Women. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis Podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. Let's check in on one more thing here because I think you started to do this, but maybe a little bit deeper dive. Let's bring folks like up to speed on 3362. And I'll, and I'll say that again in maybe a different way, Casey. There's a couple things that were percolating around the end of the last administration. One was perhaps the idea of adding sheep, bighorn sheep and moose to the concept because they migrate in different areas and at times. And then, you know, one of the things we you told me as we were preparing for this episode too, is it's based on this migratory bird joint venture model. And I, I wasn't aware of that. Maybe you can, maybe you can unpack that a little for us and, and touch on where things lie with the sheep and moose and any other kind of latest developments. Sure. Uh, the, the sheep and the moose. <laughs> So I, I, I laugh. Cause, I had to uh, ask. Sorry, I had I, to ask. I know. That's cool. No, I mean, it's no secret. It, I, I was kind of embarrassed when it got thrown out there and nixed. I know better than this. Uh, you should always do due diligence. Sometimes you can't think of all the due diligence that you need to do before you try to move something forward. And so had 3362 up and rolling, and I was approached. Um, at the department saying, hey, is there something we can do to this to kind of update it? And I said, you know, uh, I've heard from, and I always say this, Colin O'Mara always brought up moose. And so I was like, you know, we need to do moose. And then friends, in my background too, I know about sheep. So let's put sheep in there. Now, fully recognizing that I get the issues with domestic sheep and wild sheep. And so I actually even put a provision in this updated secretary order that tried to address that disease issue and say, look, this secretary order is not about that. This is not about disease and not about that interaction. It's about habitat conservation. Well, fast forward, I don't want to get into all the details other than to say I did develop an updated secretary order. There's a thing called the North American Natural Resources and Wildlife Conference. It happened to be in Denver that year. And it was announced that there was going to be this updated order signed later in the day by the Secretary of Interior. I and remember. later that day, he approached me and said, got some bad news. I'm like, well, what's up? <laughs> he goes, we're not, I'm not signing it. And here's why. And I went, <laughs> okay. Um, so I won't get into deep details other than to say that people that I didn't anticipate um, – kind of blew up on this and it really had to do with what the sheep moose are non-controversial i mean that's a species you don't want to hit with a car uh they're non-controversial but but uh just could not get that momentum going again i have to say that i do understand the concern and why this was was dropped and that is you know the, the public land ranchers feel sometimes like they're being pushed constantly into a corner and, and they felt that, you know, here's another instance of that. It's just one little chip at a time. And eventually, 
you know, we're going to lose our livelihood. And, and I, I respect that and appreciate that and understand that. So here we are in the new administration. I firmly believe that we will not be adding moose and sheep in 3362. Does that mean some other ancillary thing might happen? I honestly don't know, but it could. But I'm just saying from 3362, it's not changing. Uh, Even the states, the number of states. We have 11 states kicked around the idea of adding six more, five more, whatever. And it was agreed that, you know what, we're not going to screw with a good thing. This is working well. It's very well supported. We just got to keep moving ahead. So that's that's where we're at on 3362. What you see right now is what's going to continue moving forward. There will be another connectivity effort, um, I suspect. That might include other species as they come, but but I'm not intricately involved in that. So I don't want to speak on that too much. The joint venture model. So migratory bird joint ventures were established to address declining waterfowl populations in the 80s. There's a thing called the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. And in that plan, the authors of that plan were brilliant because I can't tell you how many plans are developed and they go on the shelf and that's where they sit and you walk by, you go, oh, yeah, I remember that thing 10 years ago and it never gets implemented. These folks who crafted this said, you know what? We're going to develop a plan, but we're going to develop mechanisms to help implement that plan. So they, they created these things called joint ventures. Each joint venture is kind of an independent body, has a coordinator. And there's a management board consisting of members and partners from that general region of the country. And their philosophy and their approach is science-driven landscape conservation in a non-regulatory fashion, voluntary fashion. So they have to, you know, work with private landowners and you give them, you know, an approach that says, look, we have this tool that if you're interested, would you be interested in doing it? You have that kind of conversation with these private landowners and they might say, sure, I don't feel there's any risk for me, I'd be happy to put my land in a conservation easement, for example. And so it's really that idea of having science to drive an issue. That's what we use for the big game migration corridor. And then the science identified where those priority areas were on the landscape, exactly how the migratory bird joint ventures work. And if you think about it, what migrates? Where do the birds nest in the summer? waterfowl it's alaska right on through canada prairie pothole states where do they migrate their corridor in the central flyway we can talk about that for a second colorado kansas oklahoma where do they winter texas and beyond and the same can be said the mississippi the winter habitat is louisiana mississippi and and so it's the same kind of concept but it's just big game and then you have your migratory waterfowl so i used the joint venture mentality approach, and then all that I learned from doing that for 12 years and really applied that to, to the big game effort. Well, it's, it's probably a good point uh, of the conversation then to uh, let big game hunters who don't waterfowl hunt know that what you're talking about is largely responsible for the liberal duck seasons we've now enjoyed <laughs> since the late 90s. Yes, the habitat work that has gone on 
There was a report done, um, a paper published about 3 billion birds have been lost, uh, gone. You know, they looked at all these numbers over a number of years and wow, these birds are disappearing. Guess what guild, if you want, that's what we call it, of species, that's not true. Waterfowl. And you don't have to look hard to look at the organizations that, that are available for waterfowl. Duck hunters are passionate people. I'm one of them myself. And, and we were just talking about this last weekend when I was working at our lease that, wow, duck hunters, they roll out the wallet too. And, and they spend the money in what they believe. And, and it's just, this is very unique because you don't see that at that level of intensity across all these other species, but the proof is right there. Look at the waterfowl. And that's exactly right, Bill. That, I mean, there's been liberal seasons. Once they did this adaptive harvest management approach, I'm sure duck hunters uh, are, know about that. There's different. That's a whole nother ball of yeah, wax. Yeah, so. I'm not digging into that because I cannot explain it. Other than to say there's different packages. And one of the packages is the liberal package. That means you can shoot more ducks. We've been in that liberal package ever since they instituted this thing. But again, it goes back to all that conservation work done for, for wetlands and hardwoods and grasslands and all the, all the things associated with it. So yeah, same mentality, same idea, same approach that I'm trying to implement for big game. I just haven't found those big money people that come to the table like they do at duck hunting, but I'm working on it. I'm kidding. There, there's plenty of people out there, but. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you the duck per bite that you take costs quite a bit in my world, at least. <laughs> if I were, if I were doing that with elk, man, whew. It'd be a rough, rough go. All right. But you, you get to shoot more at ducks. How's that? <laughs> yeah, you do. Especially yeah. when I go hunting with Bill, like we did this fall, it was really expensive per bite. Cause basically whatever it costs, I got zero bites, no, no water, <laughs> no ducks. It was oh, no. horrible at that point of the year. Yeah. I keep, I keep throwing Bill under the bus on that one, but uh, it's not really an indictment of his duck hunting prowess. It's more just bad bad conditions that year and we hung out with uh some of the greatest duck hunters there there are and and we found it kind of universally true where we were at that time of the year so just a tough one but i wanted to ask you one more thing about that because one of the things about migratory bird work and wet wetlands and waterfowl work is that cooperation with private landowners is so key to it bring us get give us the corollary for 3362 is there you know how how are you working with private landowners incentives things like that yeah great question Aaron again um I think of the east I even think of the midwest predominantly private land there's there's state land and well public land intermixed here and there obviously when you come out west that's a whole different ball game and and there's a lot more public land but interspersed within that public land or the private land, particularly in some of these areas where the checkerboard pattern, and that's what happened during the railroad days, uh, the checkerboard pattern is pretty intense. And so that's part of the reason why I always reiterate that the way we do things is just a non-regulatory, voluntary, non-threatening fashion, because I don't want to lose those private landowners within these corridors, because we can do all the habitat work we want on federal land or state land. And if we lose these private landowners, then we're stuck and we have this big gap. And if it's developed, for example, then then we lose the, the ability for those animals to move. And so in the Fish and Wildlife Service, there's a program called the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. And, and again, this is a nationwide program that works with private landowners to do 
habitat conservation work on their private land. Again, voluntary, non-regulatory. Here we have some money to help you put a new well in so you can flood that wetland or do various projects of that nature. That program has been very important to the big game migration corridor effort, particularly when we started to get this up and going, to work with those private landowners. Most of the projects we did through those were on fencing. Uh, I, I don't even, it's mind boggling how many yeah. miles of fence are out there. And so that was a big component of it. Most recently, like now, we are working very closely with USDA, with NRCS, and the Forest Service is involved too, thankfully. And I think what folks will see moving forward, what they haven't seen the last four years of this, is a much stronger partnership between the Department of Interior with 3362 and the Department of Agriculture. Uh, Robert Bonney, who's over at USDA, uh, is very, very supportive of these migration corridors. And I'm very, very excited how that's going to work moving forward. And I bring up USDA because they do private land conservation work. I'm I'm kind of interested just real quickly. Um, Casey, when we talk about waterfowl and private landowners, we're usually talking about really relatively small pieces of property, you know, reestablishing a, a marsh on a guy's farm on the low end of a big field or, you know, just small areas generally. Here, I assume you're talking about some pretty big pieces of property. Does that present unique challenges different from what you saw in the waterfowl world? That's, again, a great question, Bill. I, I would say it's easier because we go to one landowner, and that particular landowner might have a 5,000-acre ranch. When we were doing our work up in the prairies, you'd have to go to, gosh, some instances, a couple hundred landowners to get 5,000 acres. So the transactions in, in the, well, the communication, then hopefully the transaction of an easement or a conservation project is much easier, obviously, with one person than 200. So yeah, I, I would submit it's, it's easier. Casey, I want to ask too, because, you know, there's, there's developments across this whole spectrum of kind of thinking about connectivity that are beyond just, you know, 3362, you know, there's, there's, as you call it, the three legs of the policy stool, right? We have to use kind of federal, state, local, county commissioners, those kinds of things. What are the other developments that are kind of happening in parallel with this, you know, that, that are helping this move along? Yeah, I, I do think I just want to reiterate that point, Aaron. It, it is three legs of a stool. And, and I've seen over my career, sometimes folks focus solely on the federal part of that or they'll branch off and some will focus on the state part of it. Boy, it's not very often when you see them reach down to the local government. And I purposely gave you that example of that uh, Elk City in Mount, Elk Mountain in um, Utah, because I wanted to point to, here's what can happen. And when you talk about winter habitat, not in all cases, but a, a fair number of cases, it's a local planning department issue, not a federal issue or a state issue. And I, and I think that groups that have volunteers, that, that have people that are energy, or, you know, energetic about conservation, I'm trying to always just remind folks that, hey, doing your grassroots effort in D.C. is super important. Your fly-ins, whatever you do, running to the state capitol, that's all great and important. Don't stop doing that. But boy, right in your backyard is this local government, and they have a huge impact on 
wildlife conservation and, it, and as these towns grow like amoeba out from whatever central point they're growing from and we're seeing it all over the place that's where these decisions are made these local planning departments so i can't reiterate that enough i would say that some things to think about again might seem a little different when we think about this but all the fires that have been occurring out in the west and real focus on for fire preparedness fuel reductions those types of conservation activities well there's a lot of species big game included that benefit from successional habitat meaning habitat that's not been growing for 300 years where they go in they thin it out a little bit sunlight comes in new green growth comes so i'm trying to always look at an opportunities to say look you're doing all this for fire preparedness or or um fire reduction type of activity, get it around the homes and the, and, and the communities. That should be number one, no question about it. But as you move out from that, hey, can we overlay our maps a little bit and we can show you perhaps where these really important areas are for big game or, or, or other species that would benefit from forests that have a little more light going down to the ground and have a little more... Um, management done to them. And so I think that's one area that I really try to promote and, and push out to folks to be thinking about. Obviously, you both know this very well, money, money, money. You know, that is very important. It drives the, the bus on what we do. We've accomplished a lot of things in the last five years, no question about it. One of the things that we haven't accomplished, and that's out of my shtick as a government employee, and that is, you know, like a permanent pot of money or a permanent funding stream for this effort. For wetlands, you have a thing called NACA, National Wetland Conservation Act, National Wetland Conservation Act that gives grants out to do wetland conservation. But there's a pot of money there that people can go to. There's Neotropical Bird is another grant. I could go down the list. There isn't anything like that for this, this type of conservation effort. And so we'll see what happens in the future. But that's one thing that um, I know folks are talking about, but I don't know how far along it's going to get. <clears throat> and then lastly, I would say there, there has been federal legislation that's been introduced, gosh, over, I want to say four or five years. I'm probably off by a few years that was trying to do what they call a Tribal Corridor Act. I think that's been actually introduced in this current Congress at, yeah. the, at the national level. But there's also was another um wildlife corridor act that just fits and starts i i think it's just they tried to edit it and do things to it and it's still not getting attraction and so i don't I really know where that's going the tribal one it's not a lot of money i'd be surprised if it didn't pass but but who knows in this day and age so sure and I, i'm glad you a couple things there i'm glad you mentioned kind of that local you know, I think county commissions particularly, right, where you're talking land use code, how you're going to develop or not, the rural areas, how you're going to, uh, you know, decide which areas are fit for development, you know, land trust type work. I'm on a land trust board, you know, trying to get easements into some of these big ranches and other big properties that, you know, I sometimes some counties are doing a good job of actually identifying wildlife habitat in their counties, which that's kind of new, right? Like counties mostly have not really spent much time going, hmm, where's the habitat in our county? They're focused on a lot more, you know, industrial type things like where's a housing development going to go or, or so on. So I think we're, we're seeing some progress there. And I, again, I would, I would 
give this this effort some of the credit there because we're finally shining a spotlight on wait there's all these values right under our noses and maybe we haven't appropriately given them their due and, and if nothing else we're we're kind of just doing that right we're illuminating some of that stuff um so so just thanks for pointing that out and i wanted to give you one other thing too because I think, you know, you know about an effort NWF and, and many others have worked on at the Colorado, New Mexico border with some forest planning and some migration issues. Uh, our friend Jeremy Romero works on this quite a bit, uh, NWF employee. And, you know, that's kind of a, a perfect example of what you're talking about a little. You've got tribes, you've got, you know, counties, you've got several different forests, you've got BLM, you know. Maybe you can maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that's working. I I think you're pretty familiar with that one, and 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 talk about you know how these kinds of things stir together with with this kind of focus on that. Well, in the New Mexico example, you mentioned Jeremy, and I I think the world of Jeremy is great great guy personally, but also I think a great asset for your organization. And having him based down there and his background and knowledge. I always say this, even with this national effort, having a person that is responsible for implementing that effort is really, really important. And quite frankly, it's key because if you just give it to someone else's duties as assigned, we know how that works out. They give them 10% of their time because that's all they can give. And in that instance down there, um, you know, Jeremy's focused on this stuff and he's doing a, you know, a great job bringing everyone together. In fact, I think it's two weeks from now, there's a, a New Mexico Wildlife Corridor Summit. And I, this is like the third or fourth one that they've had down there. New Mexico yeah. is one of those states that also passed state level legislation focused on transportation. And Jeremy was on the, the, the team that built that 270 page uh, report that's now out for comment, I think. And so, but again, they brought together the Forest Service, the BLM, the private landowners. That's the conservation approach that we have to follow out here if we really want to make progress on some of these areas. And so I think a lot of the credit goes to the people down in that part of the world, but also, you know, efforts from folks like Jeremy. I mean, he's there on it, he's focused on it, and he's really trying to push it over the finish line. So, Yeah, Jeremy deserves a lot of credit on that um, because he's, you know, knows the landscape. He's a consummate hunter, outdoorsman, angler, knows the landscape as well as anybody, natural connector, collaborator. We're, we're really appreciative we get to have him on board. I would Bill, also, before we let, I would oh, just also ahead. add, I don't, I don't want to be missing this. Um, down in that part of the world, too, is the Southern Ute Tribe. And they, they mm -hmm. are very engaged in that conservation efforts down there. In fact, as I speak, uh, they are developing an overpass uh, and down in that part of the world that, on tribal land that goes from tribal land to tribal land. But that was a, a, a joint effort with partners throughout Colorado. They got a NIFWF grant through the Big Game Migration Corridor effort. And so I, I do want to make sure to highlight that you know, spots around this country uh, the tribes are engaged in this in, in, in some instances and in Southern Ute tribe in particular is one that's very engaged. And so again, that's part of the success that they're experiencing down there in Northwest New Mexico, Southern Colorado. Sure. Yeah. That four corners area. And I need, you know, it's not quite exactly the four corners area where a bulk of Jeremy's work is, but you know, for all intents and purposes, it's the four corners area. It's one of the, it's one of the biggest areas with, with tribal land holdings in the whole country critical that we, you know, engage all those partners down there. So 
it, it is really a good kind of shining example of what can happen. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Casey. Bill, before before we let Casey go, because we're coming up on our time here, what what else you want to ask him before we let him fly? I want to go back to the local thing just real quick because I see it all the time in my work uh, in Louisiana where we advocate for these huge uh, uh, restoration projects. Yet in the end, it really comes down a lot of times to how local people feel about how they'll be impacted. Um, but do you have any suggestions for people on how to keep up with things on a local level, especially out west? in regards to this this situation i mean where do they need to be looking i'm the worst guy to ask because i'm not a um i'm not in all this technology so i don't even know how to use facebook twitter what all this stuff uh, whatever they use these days <laughs> I, i'm like an old man but that it is what it is we hope you'll be able to listen to this podcast at least my wife showed me how to do that so i actually listened to bob bud's one and i went well hell he's okay, a hell good, he, good. he's a hell of a one to follow because i know bob well and he's like 100 miles an hour full energy. <laughs> he's good i'm more of a matter of fact kind of guy anyway uh you know i think through all the media outlets i still go and look at local newspapers i can get I know how to get online, like a website. And so I do that and I find <laughs> local newspapers and, and that's still listed in there when they have city council or county council meetings or town council meetings. I mean, that's one mechanism to do it. But I also think having one person, heck, we have gatherings of people that are in NGOs. We have dinners that people go to. We have local work groups that go out and do. If one person in that group is up on this stuff and is willing to share that, with all the other folks, that that's a lot of power that can go forward and have these conversations. And, you know, ultimately, it'd be great to see someone having the capacity to start doing little newsletters to say, hey, you're in Arizona coming up this week as a, a meeting that's going to impact this many acres on the outskirt of town X. You know, again, it sounds great. It just takes a person to do those types of things. But I really do think that all the social media stuff that exists these days, they post that stuff everywhere. I'm sure that's one way to find it, but I'm old school. I use the webs and, or a newspaper, God forbid, they still make those things. <laughs> well, I would be criminal if I didn't say we have a lot of that stuff at our fingertips through the Federation. You know, we're, we're a true Federation, 53 state and territorial affiliates. So if there is one on the outskirts of some town in Arizona, I guarantee you Arizona Wildlife Federation will be talking about it, as will Tennessee Wildlife Federation or Colorado or whatnot. And uh, we do our best here at NWF Outdoors to to get folks, you know, that kind of information on our social media and so on as well. So check out those those resources. Uh Casey, I'll send you a link. All you have to do is click on it and you'll be on your way. <laughs> right on. But, uh, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll let you go, man. Anything you want to leave us with and, and just thank you as well. We've, we've learned a lot. We appreciate you kind of keeping the fire hot with this thing and critical work and, you know, all the, all the sportsmen and women across the West and beyond everybody who comes out here should, should really be engaged in this and, and thankful that it's happening and, just anything you want to leave us with. Sure. I, I, you know, Aaron and Bill both, I really appreciate the hospitality. I appreciate this time and this opportunity. Look, I grew up hunting and fishing and 
I'm from a small town and I know how small town folks are. And we just want to be left alone. Let us do our job. Let us go do our fishing or hunting, whatever we're doing on the weekends. And I still wrestle with my friends trying to get them engaged in some of this stuff. Look, they'll go to a dinner. They'll support an NGO. They'll do those types of things. It's that next step that they're just not willing to take. And sometimes it's because they're not knowledgeable enough to do it. And I think we as a community have a responsibility and obviously you, you all do a good job of that. We don't as a community helping educate folks on how to go about doing this. But I would say to all the other listeners that are out there, I mean, I did have this conversation with myself, who's going to do it, man. I mean, we, we can watch this stuff continue and piss and moan and complain and every, that does, doesn't get us anywhere. We, we have to take the initiative and start, be willing to go to that. I know we work all day, but those county council meetings or whatever the deal is, uh, is in the evening, go make your voice heard. Heck, we saw this lax election, what the parents did across this country with what's going on. And, and we saw how when people rise, people have to listen. And so I just, I hope that my little time with y'all can help, um, inform people about what's going on out there, but also help people think a little bit about, gosh, I have an opportunity to do a little more. Maybe I can. And I hope that's what happens. So thank you again. You're welcome, Bill. Anything else? Leave us with any wise words? Man, no wise words. We've got, we've got spring coming and I hope everyone has a great one with fishing, turkey hunting and whatever else you're doing outdoors. Well, Bill, I don't know if you're keeping a, a count, but for the 118th time or so, I'll say it just to, to reiterate what Casey was saying. With privilege comes obligation. We, we got this amazing natural resource, this wildlife, and, and especially as sportsmen and women, we get to go enjoy it and, and bring it home and feed our families. Go take care of it. And uh, thanks, Casey, for helping remind folks that. And uh, we'll see you down the trail. Adios, gents. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. We are NWF Outdoors. Through the Blackwater Bayous, and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the duck camp dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is duck camp dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.